0: Welcome to Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hasse, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Joining me today are two of the authors of the special report, Nasogastric Tube Placement and Verification in Children, Review of the Current Literature. This report is published in the June 2014 issue of NCP. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Sharon Irving, Certified Registered Nurse Practitioner with the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing in Philadelphia, PA, as well as the Hospital Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Dr. Carol Kemper, Vice President, Quality and Safety at Children's Mercy Hospitals and Clinics in Kansas City, Missouri. So before we start a discussion today, I'd like to ask Dr. Irving and Dr. Kemper if they have any disclosures on this topic that they would like to share.
1: No, I do not. This is Dr. Irving.
0: And this is Dr. Kemper, and no, I have none. Well, thank you both, Dr. Irving and Dr. Kemper, for joining me today. As we know, safety is very important in medical care, and that is one of Aspen's core values is to provide safe, efficacious, and compassionate patient care. So your project and paper stems from this goal to ensure that we do have safe patient care. So I want to start out, Dr. Irving, can you kind of explain to our listeners what the acronym NOVEL stands for as well as what the NOVEL project is, how it was conceived, and who was involved in that project?
1: Well, first, I want to say thank you again for this opportunity to discuss this important topic so Novel is the New Opportunities for Verification of enteral Tube Location. It is the brainchild, I'd like to call it, of Beth Lyman, who's been a long-time Aspen member and who is a pediatric nutrition support nurse. She has, for years now, really taken time and really looked into how can we do this better. Um, what we do know is that this is something that nurses think about all the time, this idea and this challenge of how we place these tubes. So that's what got the project moving was it just needed a leader, and Beth was able to take that up. Um, Who is involved in the project? We have a full range of a multidisciplinary group, and that ranges from neonatologists, advanced practice nurses, uh, nurse practitioners. We have uh, neonatal nurses as well. We have a parent involved in the project. We have engineers who represent the American Academy, I believe it is, of medical instrumentation. So we have a full gamut really looking at this issue and what can we do to make this a little bit better.
0: And Dr. Kemper, what would you say have been some of the driving forces behind the safety project with nasogastric, enteral access devices? And, and why did this project focus more on the pediatric sector this time around?
2: Well, first, I'd also just like to echo Dr. Irving's thanks for the opportunity to talk with your listeners about this project. I would say the the driving force or what really got us involved in this project was the events or incidences that we were hearing about related to NG2 placement. As part of the, the Child Health Patient Safety Organization, which the organization where I work as part of that, we recognized this as is an issue and published a safety alert in 2012, and from that started hearing more and more stories about events that have occurred, and we were hearing those certainly from clinicians, but also from patients and families, and so that really got us interested in delving into this. As far as pediatrics, well, all of us are pediatric practitioners, so obviously this is of high importance for us. But also, there has not been as much work in the pediatric arena around this topic. Certainly in the adult world, there has been a great deal of work, and there's been some work that has been very helpful in pediatrics, but it's still limited, and so there's a lot yet to be learned.
0: I also want to point out to our listeners that, you know, when we talk about these driving forces and you talk about incidences, I, I want to direct our readers to look at the invited commentary that complements this paper and NCP because there really isn't a personal story that has been written by a parent of a child who was affected by inadvertent nasogastric tube placement and a professional. And to me, that really drove home the personal feeling of why this is so important. And, Dr. Irving, in in your research, what were some of the myths that you found out about nasogastric tube placement or even verification that you discovered when you were developing this project?
1: So not so much the myths. I think that is a a term that, um, although we use it, I think the way to really think about this project in particular is we wanted to really understand what has been placed out there in the literature, what is out there, and how does that relate to what are nurses and other care providers doing? One of the major things that we found as we were working on this is there's a lack of even standardization of the language surrounding this issue. You know, misplacement, displacement, mislodgement, dislodgement, wrong placement. There's lots of terminology that really got us to recognizing how big this project really can develop into. In addition, we also recognize, as we were trying to um, pull all this together, that there's never really been a standard way or any true mechanism by which to collect these data in terms of the misplacements and displacements and incidences that have occurred related to placement of these tubes. So historically, the reporting of these has been variable, And it's not um, something that most institutions want to readily put forward, that they've had this mishap occur. So as we were developing this, it became very clear to us that we don't know. We really don't know what's the true number of the incidents. It's very vaguely placed. You may see some case reports and such, but there's no true number that's out there. And even larger than that, we found that there's no true number as to how many children on an inpatient basis even have a nasogastric tube. We don't even know that number. So it's very difficult to pull this all together. And so that was one of the things that we said, we really have to peel back the skins of this onion and understand this this issue better.
0: And I think we all realize that placement of nasogastric tubes is a very common procedure. So what do you think that this common procedure and maybe the complications have maybe maybe not necessarily been forgotten or passed by, but have prevented us from developing safer, fail-proof methods of placing and verifying tubes?
1: So this is Dr. Irving. I think one of the things, or we know as we've discussed, is this has historically been such a bedside nursing procedure that it could be that we've become to some degree, desensitized by it, which is not to minimize the challenges either around placement or when a tube is misplaced or found to be dislodged. But I think that because it's just been something that we've done years ago, it was a procedure that nurses just taught the next nurse. It wasn't necessarily a sequential stepwise process to do it. And so I think that over the years, That is why it's not really been looked at as intently.
2: And this is Dr. Kemper. I would echo that. I think, you know, in the invited commentary, and as you mentioned, there's a story from a nurse about her experience with misplacing an NG tube. And she says in that discussion that she had done this thousands of times before. She um, is very experienced. And so I think, you know, we see it as such a day-to-day commonplace procedure. So I think that is one of the the reasons. And then also, as uh, Dr. Irving mentioned, I think, you know, we don't have much information about the incidents and the types of events that have been occurring around NG2 misplacement. And it sort of reminds me a little bit, of a few years ago when we all were a bit shocked when we heard the Institute of Medicine report and heard that as many as 98,000 people might die each year due to some sort of healthcare related error. And I think it's the same thing. We don't have all the information to know what the full scope of the issue is.
0: You know, in your special report that you published in NCP, you highlighted about seven methods of verification of nasogastric tube placement. Specifically, the report talks about auscultation, aspiration of secretions, submergence, capnography, using electromagnetic placement device, uh, tube measurement, and ultrasonography. So, based on your research, did you guys find any kind of common techniques that we should just really abandon because of poor outcomes, or on the other hand, what are some of the methods that we should learn to rely on, maybe even more work towards, including in our practice?
2: This is Dr. Kemper, and I can start off with just some of the things that, I, that we've talked about that we think should be abandoned, and um, certainly in the safety alert that the Child Health Patient Safety Organization published a year or so ago, we identified that we should immediately discontinue the use of an air bolus with auscultation to verify NG2 placement. And also, I would say we would recommend that submergence is probably a method that we should not use. Due to the risk of aspiration, we know that that can be problematic. So I think those would be the areas that we would say we should discontinue those uh, immediately.
1: And then to follow up the second half of your question there, there's been some early work that looks very promising using measurement in a more precise way to measure what the length of the tube is before it's placed. And so that could be helpful uh, combined with other methods for verification. So I believe what we are seeing thus far is that pH has a very good outcome. It has also its limitations because we know that the pH of premature infants is different than a two-year-old, say, gastric pH. So there's still some work to be done, but a huge emphasis needs to be on patient assessment before, during, and following the insertion of the tube. I think that's a key piece that because the provider, whoever's placing that tube, will see that child before they put the tube down, knowing what that child looks like. And then during the the practice of putting in that tube, how does that child change? And then following it, do they get back to their baseline and do they look okay? Now, that's not surefire, but that's one area that we can definitely pay attention to. And then I think another area to really put some emphasis on will be the identification of those patients that are at high risk. We know that there are a certain group of patients that are at higher risk for tube misplacement initially and at higher risk for dislodgement of tubes that are already in place. So I think identifying those patients and recognizing that they are at higher risk will help us as well to pay a little bit more attention and then make sure that that assessment is um, adhered to and documented.
0: I know both of you are pediatric specialists, but it seems like a lot of the complications that may be involved with NG placement and pediatrics could probably apply to adults. So, Dr. Irving, do you know, are there any movements or initiatives that are out there to address the same topic in the adult population, or do you expect that we would find any differences between these two populations?
1: So, to address the second half of your question first, the differences. One of the major challenges in pediatrics across the board is that we deal with different size patients from infancy up to young adults. So that's one of the major differences in terms of addressing this issue and this problem. Whereas in the adult population, I won't say it's standardized, but they have, they have less variation, you know, in terms of types of tubes, sizes of tubes, even that they use. So. I do think some of the same challenges exist, but there's been a lot more work done in the adult population. Dr. Matheny, Dr. Norma Matheny, has done a great deal of work in that population. And so, although the same types of challenges exist, I think they have a little more expanded knowledge base on it than we do in pediatrics. I know that there are some adult institutions that have moved towards having a specialized team That puts down these tubes with the thought process that the more you do, the better you are at it, and the better you are at assessing when changes occur, even subtle changes, because this is what you do all the time. I don't know that any pediatric institutions have moved to that yet. There may be, but I don't know that any have moved to that practice. In the first part of your question, there are, as I said, the same topics, and Dr. Ellett's who's done a lot of work in pediatrics, has helped us and really laid some groundwork on the things that we need to study in the pediatric population related to this topic. And I think there's a lot more to do. In fact, I know that there's a lot more to do for us to better understand this. But, you know, the groundwork is there, and now it's because we have this heterogeneic population in pediatrics, now it's looking at the nuances of each of those samples and, you know, each of those Cadres of children, and what is different about them, and how can we make this practice better and safer for them?
0: I know our listeners, just like me, we always like to be able to find those gems and, and kind of incorporate the findings of this report into our practices. So, Dr. Kemper, can you give our listeners maybe three or four main recommendations to improve safety of nasogast enteral device placement in pediatric patients?
2: Yes, I think one of the first things to do is just to think about the population that you're caring for and identify those infants and children that are at higher risk, but also to look at the policy and the practices within your own organization and look at those in light of what we know with the evidence. So, you know, I think particularly around the use of, as we said, the air bolus to verify placement would be something that we would want to make sure that we were not using within our institution. So I think looking at that and evaluating the the practice at the bedside, as we talked about a little bit earlier, looking at our measurement practices, so what are we using and is it most up-to-date with what we know in the evidence? And then re-educating our clinicians that are at the bedside around that assessment. That is such an opportunity, I think, to detect and recognize where we might have a problem with displacement early before we get too far into complications. The other thing is I think we all need to be thinking about how to strengthen our ability to capture these events, and those are the Certainly I think we're capturing catastrophic events within our own institutions, but how we're capturing both the the catastrophic events and then those more minor that might be causing less harm, I certainly would advocate for participating with a patient safety organization because I think it allows a greater opportunity to share some of that information and what those experiences are, again, to generate learning around the topic.
1: Where do you think we need to go in the future with this topic? So I think that, as we've been discussing thus far, increasing the conversation, making sure that there's an awareness. I think, as I said before, the knowledge base of the providers and the nurses, physicians, dietitians, everyone that is involved with this, increasing their knowledge and making sure that they know that there's an issue to be addressed.
0: Before we finish, are there any other issues or topics that either of you would like to address?
2: I think one of the things that, that I would just say is that, you know, recognize that NG2 misplacement represents a situation that can cause significant patient harm. It is devastating when it occurs, certainly to patients and families, but also to clinicians. And it's just imperative that we work on developing the strategies and the technologies that prevent this from ever happening. I think the price is just too great when we see how impactful these events are, and I think there are a lot of opportunities for us to simply eliminate this complication from occurring.
1: And this is Dr. Irving. I would, in addition to all of those things which are extremely important in this, I think we also have to recognize that this is not an issue that any single discipline is going to solve independently. I think it takes the village, as we like to say. So it's going to take everyone looking into it. It's going to take nursing who are the end users. It's going to take our physician colleagues who end up caring for these patients once they've had an event. It's going to take partnering with engineers to help us identify and design and develop the devices. It's going to take patient safety organizations to help us to keep track of what's going on. It's going to take a lot of minds. It's going to take industry to help us put it out there. It's going to take a lot of minds and to really address this problem appropriately and make sure that we look at all aspects of it as we continue to move forward with this.
0: Well, I really want to thank you, Dr. Irving and Dr. Kemper, for not only sharing your expertise with our with our listeners, but with working with your team and, and developing that special report. And I do invite our readers to read that topic in that special report in the June twenty fourteen issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you for your attention today. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you.